So, Second Peter tonight, chapter number 1. We have been working our way through the first part of this chapter. Tonight we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. We're going to kind of start into it a little bit, but especially 5 um, will be getting our attention here tonight. Now for this very reason also, Peter starts to write, verse 5, Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. That's a list, isn't it? This is not a shopping list for you to pick the top three, all right, or two. It sounds like it's going to keep you busy, doesn't it? Just the nature of what you just heard. But many times when we read such lists, we say, you know, I'm pretty good at this one, or maybe I'm not so good at this one. And if we got a report card and these were all the categories, I'm not going to ask you how you do. But some of us would say, I do pretty good at this, and we don't do so good at that. Because any time we see a list, we do things like that. Mentally, we think them through and say, you know, I, I know where my weakness lies. And, and here he gives me more excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And that's a list. We say, I, wanna, I want some options here. But as you probably know, none of them are optional. They're all required of us. And they all come with the same expectation. So we're going to talk about that here tonight. And go back to the beginning of verse 5 and see how he starts this little phrase. Now for this very reason. That's his attachment to the previous thoughts. So we're going to dig into this, but let's ask the Lord to help us tonight as we get started. Heavenly Father, we bow before you again with the privilege of having your word opened in front of us that we might glean from it. Here this evening, it's, it's kind of uh, rainy outside, it's a little cool, it is January, it is dark. But I thank you, Lord, for those who have come out here tonight, and those who are listening to our recording as well. And I pray, Lord, that you might bless the ministry of your word, for that is what changes our lives and encourages us and, and uh, prepares us for what lies ahead. So as we spend our time here tonight, we're not wasting our time, definitely not. This is valuable time for us as your children to sit at your feet and to learn. So help us with it here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what reason? Back up, we just saw it in verse number three. He has given to us how much? Everything. Everything. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's what we spent some time on last time. And that's an amazing thing to read. He has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So what are we lacking? Nothing. That's important to note. Uh, he has given to us all that. And really that does match Peter's request in verse number 2. Oh, that grace and peace might be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our in our Jesus, and of Jesus our Lord. Here he's, his wish is already granted, in that sense. God has given to you everything. Everything for life 
and for godliness. Now, that was freely given to you. That's such an amazing thing to think of. God, in his wisdom, said it must be free. Think of that. He didn't say it's going to cost you $10,000. Some of us would say, well, then I can't do it. <laughs> he, he didn't say, you, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. You, it's a merit system. And I'll give you, oh, I'll give you life first, and then, you know, you've got to earn your way up to the godliness thing. Uh, he did not do that, did he? It's just remarkable when you stop and think about God's grace. Freely, freely given. And it's such an immensely important thing to us. And yet sometimes we just kind of throw it around like, well, it's great. I got grace. <laughs> it's an incredible gift. All these things that we read of, he has granted to us freely, abundantly, in the biggest generation, generous handout he could possibly give us. He granted to us everything for life and for godliness and he gave it to us by his own power, his divine power. Now, we talked about this last week, but I'm giving you the, the nutshell of what he said what, for this very reason. We have to understand, what is that? He gave it by his power. He gave it completely, perfectly, we saw last week. He gave it through the full knowledge that he possesses, even of us. And that's amazing to me. He knows us inside and out from beginning to end, and he says, I'm going to give them this. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Full knowledge of all. He called us. Yes, that's also woven into the words in verse number 3. Called us by his own glory and excellence. Uh, we talked about that this morning. That's an important phrase. He calls us with a purpose. It's not a mistake. He, he's given in keeping with his glory and his excellence. That's his reputation. You're wearing it. Your, your life is, is in the picture of his reputation. He, he, here's a picture, if you will. He has these that he's called and said, I will give them life. I will give them everything for godliness. And he put it down in black and white. And the whole world could see this. And the whole world could look over there and say, well, he didn't do it to that person. Isn't that a mark against his reputation? Because this is his promise, right? This is what he said. And so God, even in this, said, my reputation is set before the whole world that I'm doing this. If you want an interesting study, go into the Old Testament and see how many times Moses would say, Lord, don't do this because, and he always brings up who God is. And it's kind of interesting. If you've ever argued with God that way, I don't know. But Moses was very bold, wasn't he? To say, Lord, it's your reputation, remember. And that's like, woo! I've never thought about praying that way. Really. I'm kind of scared of that, Steve. I don't know about you, but... Yeah. <laughs> Just like, do we really do that? But... It's in Scripture. And God has said, this is in keeping with my glory, my excellence, that I'm going to do this. And it's referenced on his character, because it's a promise, verse number 4 says. These are, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. That's what he's done for us. 
Verse 4 goes further into saying what he's done to us. What he's done to us is that he has, as it says, made this possible so that by them we might become, I changed the pronoun, you see that, you might become, or we might become partakers of the divine nature. That's, the, that's not that we don't have it and we're looking for it as such. That means we're going to grow into it. We're, be, we're become more and more like it. And I'm going to just simply think that we can't become like him unless he had done all this first. This is his work in you and me. And we're, we're here to take on the characteristics of what he's told us to do. So he's making you to be like himself. And there's a lot of scripture to support that too, isn't there? He's, he's making us like himself. And what he's also done is given us an escape hatch. Look at the rest of it. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We, we know corruptions in this world. We know that. Do you know what else? Side note. I shared this with my Sunday school class this morning. But it was something that's very pronounced. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's been on my thoughts for several days, and I figured, well, I'd better just tell you. Uh, so we were looking at it this morning. 2 verse 15. You're reading through passage, chap Philippians chapter 2, and there's so many wonderful things in there. Uh, it talks about Christ and his humility and his obedience to the point of death and all. God highly exalts him and all that. You see that in the first, up to verse number 9 and 10, every knee will bow before Jesus and so on. And then he goes into verse 15. 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We're going we're gonna to mark that and say, okay, right? <laughs> Let's, uh, we're not studying that right now. We want to go home happy tonight. But uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Watch this. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. How many times do you look at the newspaper or hear in the news and think, boy, is this a tough world to live in? It's crooked. That's actually the same word we get scoliosis from. You doctors would appreciate that. It's bent. It's a mess. It's a crooked generation we live in. It's perverse. That word means perverse, by the way. I looked it up. It's just what it is. It's like, yuck! It's not right at all. It's a crooked and perverse generation. And watch this. Among whom you need to fix them. No. Among whom you what? Appear. Appear as lights. Appear as lights. He didn't call for us to go and fix the crooked and perverse generation. He said, all I want you to do is be the light. If you, were, if you had something you needed fixed, how many times do you grab the light bulb and start beating on something with it? You don't. But the light is needed to show the problem, right? Too many times we take on ourselves what God does. God changes the heart. God changes the generations. But what does he call us to be? The light. And the world 
hates the light. Right? John chapter 3. Anyway, when you look at that, and then you go back here to Peter, and you say, okay, what's going on here? He's given us an escape, really, from the corruption that is in the world. That doesn't mean you're set free from it, you're out of it, you're, 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 uh, you're not going to be touched by it, you know, those kind of things. But the idea behind, the, behind this is this world is depraved and operating in the sphere of lust and all that's there, and he has set us free from that. Because prior to our salvation, that's where we were. That's what Ephesians will tell us in chapter 2. We were by nature children of wrath. We followed the course of this world. We were involved in its lusts. We followed its leaders. We did it. We thought it. We lived it. And God has made that kind of a difference for us. He has set us free. He's given us an escape from the world's corruption. That's wonderful to see and that's wonderful to know. God has done all this. For this very reason, Peter starts to say, it's based on all these things. Now, let me walk through a little bit of a list of what difference it makes. Because God has done this, he's produced in us a new appetite. An appetite for that which is pure and holy. He has changed our behavior because we ought to be more like our Father in heaven. He he has given us a new spiritual environment that's suited to our nature. Which is wonderful, because we certainly can't enjoy this environment, but we have a life now lived in a spiritual environment. He's given us new associations in which, which are true to our nature. He has changed us in that too. He gave us the opportunity, starting in verse 5, to grow. And I'll call it the opportunity. Because any time it's given to us in Scripture, it's given to us in the nature of the command, isn't it? Grow! Peter does that several times in his book. Grow! And, and everything else seems to grow naturally. But in the Christian circles, why do we need it to be commanded to us? It's an opportunity to become more like Him and to grow in His things. But for whatever reason, and I've heard one ancient writer write it this way, the more spiritual it is, the more apt we are to run away from it. Because I don't know what it is that alarms it. Maybe, maybe it's our fleshly nature. Maybe it's our, our minds that are still not mature as they should be. But we think, oh, that sounds like hard work. Spiritual work is hard work. Especially in a depraved environment a evil, corrupt generation that we live in. It's hard work, and to do it, you're going to stand out, aren't you? So we're more likely to say, hmm, or think about that. But we have an opportunity. We have a privilege to grow in this new nature. And then as we get further on to verse 8 and beyond, we also have the privilege of seeing fruit in keeping with our nature. So we're working all this, but John Bunyan once said the soul of religion is the practical part. That's an easy thing to remember. But it really does get down to, you know, we know these words, but do we do them? Isn't that the difference? Doesn't James say something about that? There's the hearer and there's there's the doer. And here we have the chance to hear, but we also are called to do. Let's walk through verse 5 through 
uh, 7 here tonight. Let's talk about the believer's diligence first. He's diligent, or he should be. For this very reason also, applying all diligence. This is our first opportunity to respond to the giving we just read about in the first four verses. Applying all diligence. Matter of fact, it's even more than just what you might see in your English here. It is a command. Alright? This is a command. Peter only gives, believe it or not, seven commands in this whole book. Only seven. Two of them are directly referencing being diligent. Three more are related to being diligent. So out of seven, five of them speak of diligence. It's almost like Peter had one real thought on his mind as he's writing this book. And he will tell you later on, he says, well, I, I, I think I'm about to go. It's coming soon. And he'll tell you that before the end of this chapter. I, I think my days are, are just about up. What is the one thing I would tell you you need to do? Get diligent about this. And that seems to be his theme all the way through. To, to do this. Hurry it. Hurry it. Urge it on. It's speedo. S-P-E-U-D-O. Speedo is the Greek word. To hurry it. To urge it on. You see it here in verse 5. It would be in chapter 1, verse 10. Make all, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling you. He does it again in chapter 3, verse 14. He calls for us to be diligent. To be earnest. To exert oneself. These are all in the concepts of being diligent. Somebody has said diligence is the Christian trademark. What does 2 Timothy 2.15 say? There's a word diligent in some translations. Another one says study. Does that help? Yes. Study, right? Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. The, the word there, study, is in essence, be diligent about this. Be diligent about this. That's not something that takes the back seat, does it? The Christian life. As Paul was telling Timothy there, be diligent about that. We, we have that as our, our main verse or our theme verse or however you want to call that. For the Iwana Clubs, we were part of for years and years and years in other churches. We, we ministered to the Iwana Clubs. And, and the Iwana Club is five letters long, A-W-A-N-A. -A. And that's not just an Indian term. That's approved, workmen are not ashamed. Now, what's funny is so many people call it Awana's Club. And uh, a friend of mine, he was one of the Awana missionaries, he says, what's that mean? Approved workmen are not ashamed sometimes? He says, what do you do with the S? There is no S there. Approved workmen are not ashamed. And the whole point of the club, if you've ever been part of that, is scripture memory. Scripture memory. Lots and lots of scripture memory. And I thought it was just a, a wonderful thing to watch children develop in their love for God's Word and to study and memorize. And some of them came out really funny when they tried to say them. 
I still remember my kids saying uh, that verse that Jesus says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And they misspelled, or they picked the wrong word. I said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the edge. And I said, then what? <laughs> if you go over the edge, you're in trouble. But uh, that's what they saw. And so I said, okay. But it was a lot of fun to watch them memorize Scripture. And you can't help it as a leader memorizing with them, because you hear it over and over and over again. Well, where's your diligence? Where's my diligence? This is a good place to start. If it is a command, what's expected? That we do it. And what is, does it mean if we don't? It's disobedience. Wow, it gets pretty serious in a hurry, doesn't it? We are to be diligent about something here. He, he brings us up of applying something. To, to bring it alongside. This is one of the funny things. Be diligent to apply. Uh, Peter, I don't know if he made up this word or what. He took three words and stuffed them into one. And you can try to figure out how this works. It's alongside and within and to bring. To bring alongside and within. The applying process. It's over there, you grab it, you bring it alongside, you bring it in. Sometimes we just bring things alongside. But this goes even further than that. It goes, ice is the word, within. It goes within. And it's a long word. It's about 16 letters long, and I'm not even going to pronounce it. But it's very interesting to me that this diligent of, diligence of applying, and we're going to talk about what that's going to be, but the applying of diligence is not optional. And it's not to be treated lightly. It's to bring it in and along within. It's to bring it in all the way through. It's not done till it's inside. Now what's interesting in this, as I was looking at this little text, is that Peter writes this in such a way that he's assuming his readers have already done it. To me, that's even more of a convicting phrase. <laughs> Because if somebody walks up to us and says, oh, you've already done this, I know. Then suddenly, if you didn't, how do you feel? Do I tell them <laughs> I didn't get to it yet? Or do I let them believe I did it? Peter's writing to them and said, well, after you've already done this, because he assumes that that's the case, now we can go into, into operation. We can talk about what needs to be done here. The... the um, Christian virtues, as they call it, this list of what he's calling us to apply in diligence. What is it? We're, we're going to talk it through. Because when we see a list like this, we say, okay, that's, those are pretty interesting words. I'm going to read to you a, a little quote from Kenneth Weiss, a Greek scholar. He said, the divine nature is not an automatic self-propelling machine that will turn out a Christian life for the believer irrespective of what the believer does or the attitude he takes to the salvation which God has provided. The divine nature will always produce a change in the life of the sinner who receives the Lord Jesus as Savior. But it works at its best efficiency when the believer cooperates with it in not only determining to live a life pleasing to God, but definitely stepping out in faith 
and living that life in dependence upon the new life which God has implanted in him. And this must not be a mere lackadaisical attempt at doing God's will, but an intense effort as shown by that simple word, diligence. That's a lot of words. You were writing that down. You got it all, right? What he's saying is that this doesn't come by accident. This just doesn't happen. The nature of the command requires that. But there is a difference, and you know there's a difference, between a concert pianist and an amateur. What has made the difference between those two? The practice. The diligence of practice. Probably even on days they didn't want to. The believer sees, and I think you do, I do certainly, that we have much room to grow. Much room to grow in God's grace. And no matter how far you think you are, God's grace is still bigger. We have much to grow in. And so we're not going to even look at this and say, well, that applies to everybody else. It's not to me. We're called to exert ourselves in this growing process. And so all of us fit into this. And the idea behind it, the amplified version tries to capture it and says, employ every effort in exercising your faith to develop the virtues that he's about to talk about. Employ every effort. That means it's going to take more than just your time. It's going to take your strength. It's going to take your, your mental capability to think it through. It's going to take planning. You're going to have to set up. This is going to be my thing. It's got to have the desire with it. It's got to have the, the, the effort put into it. Every aspect of this calls for more than just a piece of us. It calls for all of us. Every part of me, whether it's mental or spiritual, whether it's physical or emotional, is to be applied in this picture. It's not a small thing. Not a small thing. That's our diligence, and that just sets you up for our duty. What are we called to do? If, if that's the nature of how we're going to go about this, what are we supposed to do, Peter? He simply says, add. <laughs> supply. You might have the word supply right there in your text. I do. Uh, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, there's our verb, supply moral excellence. This is a cool word, this little word supply. And I don't know what, what Peter's experience was with this. But he uses a word that's supposed to speak of the, def the defraying or the bearing of the cost of a chorus. This is for the choir director. That's what it is. Um, and you didn't know this, but you're supposed to buy everything for us. According to this verb. Yes. Everything. That's, that was the nature of this word, was that if I'm going to have a choir, and I'm going to take it on a tour, and I'm going to uh, have it minister and song to people and stuff, the, the director of that choir was not only helping them learn the songs, and then conducting the songs, but also the bus driver, and the cook, and the one who provides hospitality at night, and everything. That's the nature of the word. To provide Everything necessary for this to operate. Everything necessary for this to operate. It's a big word, isn't it? It's more than just barely getting by. 
or providing the bare minimum, but the idea is to supply generously, to provide lavishly, like some great benefactor, suddenly on the picture. He sees the chorus, and he says, I'm going to give them all the funds, all the supplies, all the needs, all the food, all the homes and, and places to stay, so they can perform at the best of their ability. How many times do we go into something, even football teams can do this, they go into an arena and they lose really bad, and then they think, well, who do we blame this one on? It, it was the food we had for lunch. It, it was our accommodations last night. Those beds were too hard. So I messed up our game today. You know, how quick we are to say it's that fault, that fault, that fault, before we say it's our fault. This is taking all of the excuses out of the story. By using this word, he says, everything is provided, every single piece of it is provided, in every single way, so that we can't stop and say, I can't because. This is a big word, supplying. And what's interesting is, we can go back and see in verse number 3, the source of it is what? God. And what has he given to us? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. So how can we read verse number 7 and say, I can't do that because... We can't use that, can we? We can't go into verse 6 and say, well, I can't do that because... And we can't start in verse 5 and say, I can't do that because... And because God has already generously, lavishly given to us everything. Everything. So that we can perform at the best of our ability. And what he says here now is for you to, by diligence, put that into play. Supply room for that. Make sure it's ready to go. We're cooperating with him. But we're not the ones who brought it up in the first place. And we're not the ones who put out the expense to get it. And we're not the ones who, who is maintaining the, the supply in the closet. That's God's department. So he just told us, use it. Ah, use it. That's a funny part of the Christian life, isn't it? He's given to you everything. Really, what excuse do we have for not doing it? Use it. Use it. This command is expected of all the readers of this book. You, he says. You, all of you. Do it. It's an heiress type of command, which is really kind of fun, because it's, it's the most urgent of the imperatives. There are some that says, hey, you're doing a good job. Keep going. This one is, hey, you're not even moving. Get started. You ever use that for the kids? Get busy. <laughs> this is the nature of this command. you got to yell it, almost. And so I always think, when you see the word supply here, you ought to put an exclamation point right after it, because it is a command. In your faith, supply more excellence. It's not a suggestion. It's not setting up the options of this shopping list. You have everything given to you, provided for you, lavishly in your faith. What are you lacking? You already said nothing. It's all there. Spiritual growth, though, is not automatic. 
It doesn't come by accident. I think grace is very big. I love to talk about grace. But what's interesting is, it's almost like, make room for it to grow. Make room for it to grow. In your faith, in your faith, he's saying, supply more excellence. He assumes you already have your faith. So now, lavishly, open it wider for these things that are to follow. Faith. It's your firm conviction that these things are true. That God has truly done this for us. And it's funny how he brings up faith now after he's already talked about grace, he's talked about peace, he's talked about godliness, he's talked about knowledge, he's talked about promises, he's, he's talked about the divine nature, he's talked about all these things, and now he says, okay, now in your faith, because he assumes you have it, because he's talking to you that way, he says, there's room for things to grow bigger. Lots of room for this list to operate within our faith. There must be room for these things to grow and develop. Do you know these people we read of in like Hebrews chapter 11? Do you think they were automatic faith men, just giants in the faith? You ever read their lives? Abraham. He made a few blunders along the way, which didn't look like faith. Uh, Samson. You say, why is he even in the book, right? <laughs> Samson! And we say, show me some faith somewhere in there. Well, that last moment when he was pushing the pillars, he prayed, didn't he? <laughs> Lord, let me die with the Philistines. Well, there's faith for you. Um, you. You've got these illustrations of human beings like you and me. And the Lord gave them an extraordinary opportunity to say they trusted him. And it's an incredible display. We always read it as if, you know, that's the hall of faith. We call it that. But faith is really the foundation of our life. It's where it starts. Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about it right off. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And then by the time you get to verse number 6, what is expected of faith? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I think that's such an alarming and yet such an educational verse. Because we put faith sometimes as one of those side dishes. The main course is something else. But here Peter says, but you've got faith. It's where you start. And then all these things have to be added within that faith. It's going to stretch. <laughs> yes. It's going to get big. Yes. But none of these things from verse 5, 6, or 7 can operate apart from faith. It's within that faith that they operate. You're not just going to walk up and be loving without faith. You're not going to be uh, uh, even in your knowledge. Knowledge is not to be separated from faith. Self-control is not to be separated from faith. They all are to operate within that faith. Richard DeHaan said, Faith is a channel through which God's blessings flow into our lives day by day. We talk about faith in a lot of different ways in this. But it's consider this. It's essential. We know that. It's essential. If these things are going to happen, you have to have faith. For it to grow, you have to have faith. 
for you to invest in these uh, various virtues, as they like to call them, is going to take faith. Especially in the generation we live in. Especially. But here's the other side that goes with that. None of these qualities are produced by us. None of them. Godliness. All right? How do you work that up apart from God? Well, what you get is isness. You don't have godly. If you take God out of the picture, what do you have left? Nothing. You talk about some of these others here. Kindness. Brotherly kindness. You say, well, anybody could be brotherly kind. This virtue demands that God produces it in you. Because this is unnatural to a human, to a natural, if you will, a, a, a normal human um, nature. We call it now our sin nature. These are not what the sin nature wants to produce. These are what God's nature produces, the divine nature within us. So these are not ours. We're not even, as Warren Wearsby reminded in his commentary, we're not polishing human qualities here. We're producing divine qualities that make the person more like Jesus Christ. It's a different thing. So if we're going to see God's kind of more excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance develop within us in our faith, we are going to trust Him with His, not with ours. See the difference? This is His. This is what He's producing in us. That's, that's our duty then. Our duty is to give it room to grow. Supply is that word. And do it on purpose. <laughs> do it on purpose. These things must grow. Give room for it. I sometimes think that through and I say, well, if you looked on your schedule for the course of the week, how much room do you have on there? Some of us are very busy people, aren't we? We've got a lot of things on the schedule. Where's the room for these to grow? And I'm not saying give it like from 6 to 6.30 every Thursday night or something like that. I'm saying... Think it through in your life. You have to be intentional about seeing that these things have room to grow. It's not going to come accidentally, according to the nature of the command. So that's our duty. Our description is also in this. Our description. Um, Okay, I, I'm going to have to word it in a different way because this is literally how it, how it goes in verse number 5. For this very cause, while having brought in alongside every intense effort, you all begin to provide lavishly in your firm conviction. I like the word lavish in here. Provide lavishly for in your firm conviction. There's, there's a need for what I'd like to call the spiritual ingredients that we're going to see here as well. When it describes us in the nature of following through what God had told us to do here in these words, are we going to be skimpy? If somebody describes us as Christians and what we are investing in here, are they going to call us selfish or 
somehow we're just kind of, uh, you know, there's those who just barely give to anything. And you say, well, they're kind of stingy. They have everything. What do we have? Everything. How much do we give to it? This much. If, if we're going to match the description of what God has done for us, lavishly is a great word for it. How do we respond in this way? It really does describe our heart, doesn't it? As to the nature that we give to this. If we give to in such a skimpy way, such a, a selfish way, such a, you know, we're just going to be, you know, giving it the least we can. Just enough to get by. Just enough to, you know, the ingredients. You know, if it costs for three eggs and you say, no, I'm only going to give it one. Will that change the, the product? Yes, it would. Now, on the other hand, if we go overboard, we might change the product too. But to follow the instructions, it matches for this reason, for this cause. We're matching what's available to us. And we weren't given a small supply. So why should we invest with a small supply? You're going to talk about here how we develop one virtue or another. But what's interesting, as you see through your list, the virtues develop in exercise of the others. They all work together. Not one of them operates by itself. All of these ingredients go together. We can't just pick one or the other. But if we're going to uh, see moral excellence grow within our faith, we can't do that without knowledge. And we can't do that without the self-control. And we can't do that without the perseverance. And we can't do that without the godliness. And we can't do that without the brotherly kindness. And we can't do that without the love. You see? It's a package. It's all there. So when we're, we have to understand when we start to describe what is this we're doing, we're developing one virtue in the exercise of another one, and we're providing lavishly for it to happen. That's such a cool little concept. Lavishly. That's, that's included in the verb. Now, what are we adding here? Moral excellence. Let's start through the list so we get a feel for this. We're almost out of time, but I'll just run through real quickly. Moral excellence. I want you to notice something in the Greek. It doesn't do this in the English, but in every single one of these things, it puts the definite article in front of it. And that intrigues me. It's not any moral excellence. It's the moral excellence. It's the godliness. It's the perseverance. Almost as if he's saying, this one, not just anything, but this one. And I think it's this one in reference to our faith, in reference to God's nature, in reference to the divine nature within us. He says, this one, moral excellence, make a lot of room for it. What is it? It's, it's that power or energy or vigor of soul. This is translations, strength, bravery, courage. Moral excellence, good quality, good quality, things that are praiseworthy. 
And that alone is a good place to start. Just take your life and lay it down and contemplate what within this life is praiseworthy. Not, you know, as the world will applaud for it. Not hitting 73 home runs a year, right? He's talking about your, your moral, spiritual life. What is praiseworthy in that? You could answer that. You could talk about that with the Lord. Is it growing? That's what he's asking. That needs to grow. Needs to make room for it. And he said, but I don't know if I could do that. What's our theme for the year? God is able. Because it's his. And so we depend on him. That's the first thing. We, we always measure faith by action, I guess. And, and if there's no moral excellence, what might we assume? There must be no faith. It's expected. It's part of the package, as Ed told us here this evening. And by the way, it's the direct contrast. Moral excellence is a direct contrast to the false teachers in chapter 2. We must have that. So I'll set that one up, and we'll dig on that a little bit more. But we also need to provide lavishly, make much room for the knowledge. Not any knowledge, not, you know, you can name all the capitals of European countries. Not that kind of knowledge. We're talking about the knowledge, the insight, and the understanding uh, that moves from what we know in Scripture to applying it and living it. Solomon was very wise, wasn't he? He knew a lot. But at the same time, he was very foolish. Because he didn't do it. I always say, he must have been a sophomore. You ever broke those two words down? The soft side is wise. The more is moron. <laughs> it's, it's the other extreme. And you always wonder, what's wrong with those 10th graders? Well, they're caught between two things here. Here we have Solomon, in all his wisdom, all his intelligence, not applying it. I think he was about the smartest fool that ever lived. Because a fool is somebody who knows what's right to do and doesn't do it. And here, we're given the opportunity to know God's Word. Have we provided lavishly for the knowledge? Because you can't take that out of the picture and say, I could do everything but that. Because we don't know the rest if we don't know what it is. Provide lavishly for self-control. The self-control. This is the mastery. The, the strength to control the mastery. Holding something in hand is a concept. We usually talk about that in passion and temper and stuff like that. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, talks about self-control as well. Self-control is being able to handle these things. As Wiersbe adds, the pleasures of life, while patient refers primarily to the pressures and problems of life. And usually that's where people give up. I can't do it. Self-control, that's too hard for me. Uh, patience, that's too hard for me. And so we, we mark them off the list in a hurry. But we're told to have a mastery hold, if you will, on these things. You don't get a mastery hold without working on it, do you? This is not the amateur lucky thing that just happened. But somebody who has given effort, 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 effort into the self-control. 
We'll develop that more. But that's a picture as well that we've got to grow in. We've got to grow in patient endurance. That's a challenging one. Patient endurance. The perseverance to stand under something and stay there. Most of us are saying, where's the exit? <laughs> Let me out of here, right? And yet, that's one of the, the traits of a believer, is the ability to stand under it. And you say, well, that's, that's a pretty courageous thing to do. But if you remember, as we sang in our songs, the Lord is with us. Even though I walk through the valley, I will not fear, for thou art with me. Psalm 23. It was in our songs we sang this evening. So, to have patient endurance means that you trust Him. There's your faith again. To provide lavishly for the godliness. The godliness. It seems to be more particular. What is true to God. A, a very practical awareness of God in every aspect of life. That's going to be a lot of work, isn't it? To develop such a thing. Actually, it comes from an, an interesting set of words that means good worship. You say, what? Good worship? What's that with godliness? It means ready to worship. Think of this. On the, uh, any moment, at any time, are you ready to worship? That will test you how, what degree your godliness is at. Alright, all of those things so far are issues pertaining to us individually and really our relationship with God and our walk with Him and our growth in Him. The rest of these, brotherly love and kindness or just the love, those are issues that concern other people too. How it spills out into our relationship with others. The love of a brother, it says. Provide lavishly the love of a brother. That's devoteness in its kindness, its generosity, in its courteousness. And boy, do we need room for that in this world today. We need that in the Christian life. But I, I always stress this in my own thinking, is that if we could only learn kindness, what a difference that would make. When I deal with counseling issues, with husband and wives not getting along, I always start with kindness. Because if you learn to be kind to somebody... It changes your attitude, doesn't it? Changes your actions. Kindness. Far too often when we get consumed with ourselves, we forget about being kind to others. We're to make room for the kindness, the brotherly kindness, the brotherly love. And, of course, the love, agape, is the last one on this list, that selfless love, that deliberate love that we read of in 1 Corinthians 13, especially we talk about a lot of these, and I just kind of scanned through this list just to tell you that we have a huge task in front of us. <laughs> to do what Peter has said in just these three little verses is like, wow, that is what it might be called eternal studies program. All right? You're not going to outgrow this one, but you are to grow in this one. All right? We're called to grow. We're trying to make room for this. We're to provide lavishly for these things to happen. We're supposed to see them, but all of it is by faith, depending upon the one who has given to us everything in the first place. We're going to use what he's given to us. We're going to apply it in our Christian life, and we're going to walk it through. 
That's a high calling. That's a high calling. And that's what we're going to start here tonight with just these words. Uh, because when you get to verse number 8, he says, If these are yours and they're increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. And then true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know you want to be useful. And you want to be fruitful. And so we're going to examine these more. But still, bring it down to what it's all about. It's God who made this all possible. And the only way it's going to happen, with, by our faith in Him, is that we believe He is able. Because if you look in the mirror and say, I can't do this, you're right. If you say, God can do this in me, then you've got it. Okay, Father, this is a lot for us to digest. We just got a, a glimpse of it here tonight, but an important glimpse, I pray. For you are the one who applies these things to our hearts and to give us the motivation, the ambition, the, you just are the one who urges this on within us. And we feel that pull. No doubt we do. That these, these things we're called to do are far greater than we are ourselves. That's why we come back to you again at the end of our day and say, Lord, we can't do it on our own. We know that. It's because you are able that we can rest in what you have called us to do. We can move forward in these things, knowing that you've provided for them already. And we don't really have an excuse at all. But we can go out courageously, firmly, with conviction, and see these things have room to grow within us. How exciting that is, that you have included us in these things. What a blessing it is. What a privilege it is. And yet what a duty it is. I thank you, Lord, for challenging us here tonight. And I pray you bless those who are listening as well over our, our recording. And do your work in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.